0: Goes without saying that Israel is very much in the news in these present days. Again, the situation in Gaza and the war that continues there uh, keeps Israel as a nation in the forefront of people's minds at this time. But of course, that has been the case for as long as all of us have lived. By and large, I don't want to judge people's age right now, uh, but by and large, for all of our lives. Israel has been very much in the center of world news and world affairs. Going back to the Nazi genocide, followed by the Reformation of Israel of the land, in 1948, these things have uh, again been brought to attention continually over the years. Again, you can read through the history of the nation, the troubles, the wars, the turmoils. again, Israel has often been at the forefront of world affairs. But what does this all mean in terms of biblical prophecy? What does it all mean for the people of God in this present day and age? You see, from Abraham onward, there's been conflict and discussion regarding national Israel, regarding the land, and regarding covenantal promises and covenantal rights. You see, we, we all agree God entered into a covenant with national Israel. With Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and subsequent generations, there is a covenant that God made with a physical nation. But how is that covenant applicable today? What does it mean for us here in, in Malvern in 2024? What does it mean for our relationship with Israel and our thinking of that nation in our own minds? Again, I'm not in any way seeking to engender controversy here in this message. I'm just simply highlighting the fact that we understand the issue. There is a covenant made with a nation in the Bible, and that covenant it is not ignored, but continues to be treated and dealt with in this chapter of God's word. The question is, what does it all mean? You see, Paul, in these chapters, especially now in chapter 11, is proving that God is faithful in keeping his covenant, essentially by saving a remnant in Israel. And again, verse 1 has that question, hath God cast away his people? And the idea there is, has God forsaken his covenant promises? Has God abandoned Israel as a nation in light of their widespread rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ of God? But to Paul, in Paul's mind, the issue at stake is not so much about land, as it is about the hearts of the people. His burden is about God's faithfulness to the souls of his brethren. Again, I understand this language precedes A.D. 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem and the siege of Rome. But it is still right and proper to say that Paul's tremendous burden for the Israelite is their state of heart and their relationship with Christ Jesus. We must never forget that. That must be in the forefront of our thinking regarding Israel. It is that they would come to acknowledge their Messiah as their Messiah personally. It is, to use Paul's language, that our heart's desire and prayer to God is that they would be saved. See, Paul is concerned that the people who have been so privileged are so blinded. How can we Gentiles... See Jesus in Isaiah 7, 9, 42, 53, 61. How can we see Christ in those chapters? But the Jews, whose scriptures they are, cannot see these things. God has not forsaken his people, that is clear. Um, And yet the verse number 7, Paul, really begins to explain the issues so far. Again, there's this opening question, what then? Again, it sets our minds in light of what he said so far. Well, what do we understand through all of this? He goes back at least as far as back to chapter 9, the verse number 31. Look what it says there. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained. So they, they followed, they sought something, but they did not attain it. And that's verse number 7 of chapter 11. Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for. So, Paul's going to begin to explain some of these difficulties. He's going to try to make sense of the context in which he lives. When he speaks of Israel in verse number seven, he's speaking of Israel in two senses one, ethnically. Undoubtedly here, he is referring to the physical nation, the ethnic identity of those who are of Israel in that physical sense. They are of the lineage of Abraham. They go back and they, can, they know where they're coming from in terms of their heritage. And so he speaks of them ethnically, but he also speaks of them generally here. There's a generality of language here. Israel, he's not talking of one individual He's talking about the nation as a, a whole, generally speaking. Having acknowledged the remnant, verse number five, he's not referring to every single individual Israelites. He's looking at the nation as a whole, as we could look at America as a whole, and say it is a secular, unbelieving nation in a generality. Oh yes, there are many who know the Lord in the nation, but in general terms, they've turned their back against the Lord. That's how he's referring to Israel here. In a general sense, they have not obtained. They have not obtained that which they sought for. Well, what is that? Well, that, of course, refers to righteousness with God. Back in chapter 9, verse 11, But Israel, which followed or sought after or pursued the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. They understood there was a God in heaven. They understood that God was a law-giving God. They understood that it was important to be right with God. What a question that is. Have you asked that question today? How can I be right with God? Well, we sang the hymn to illustrate that point in the emphasis that the only way of righteousness is through Christ's perfect righteousness. Righteousness. That's the point of chapter 9 and chapter 10. As those chapters continue together, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. But they ask the right question. You know, Perhaps you're praying for some unsaved soul in your heart. This is a good place to start. Lord, put within their heart a sense of yourself and a recognition of their need to be right with thee. That's a good prayer to pray for those who are lost. Because the absence of this question in their minds will therefore lead to an absence of the sense of need for this righteousness. So ask that question. How can a man be right with God? Well, the the, the Jew, the Israelite, they understood that. And yet they did not obtain it. They did not find it. But the election did, verse number 7. But the election hath obtained it. Now, this is not a reference to all the elect. It's not a reference to to you and me at this point. It's a reference to the election within the nation of Israel. It's a reference to verse number five. There is a remnant according to election of grace. It's not referring to Gentiles right now. He's referring to those who are elect Israelites at this point. They obtained it, but the rest were blinded. In other words... Within national Israel, in general terms, there's a rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, but there are those within national Israel, they are the election according, or they are the remnant according to the election of grace, they have obtained it, but the rest are blinded. Gentiles don't come to the fore until you get down to verse number 11. And so Paul is highlighting the situation with national Israel. By and large, the nation is made up of those who are blinded to the gospel truths that the elect have come to see. And so in verse number 7, Paul is explaining the state of affairs here. He's saying, well, no, God has not cast away his people, but, but here's what's happening here. The elect, those who know God's grace, they have come to see and understand the gospel, but the vast majority are blinded. And so Paul is really answering the question, Why don't the Jews believe in Jesus as the Christ? And the answer he gives is the answer we can give today. How come? How come the Jews who have the Old Testament Scriptures cannot see in the person of Christ their own Messiah? How can that be the case? Well, in answer to the question, Paul begins by pointing out that Israel's rejection of Jesus as the Christ is patterned in the Old Testament scriptures. Verse number 8. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. Now what you're seeing here is Paul again taking the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, He's taken that Greek translation, and what he's done here is he has merged two separate Old Testament texts. So what I want to do is I want you to, if you can look in your Bibles, get your Bible out. I want you to initially turn your Bible uh, to Isaiah 29. But we're not going to stop there, but you might put a finger in there, okay? So Isaiah 29, and then we'll just mention that verse. We'll come back to it, though. And then having passed by Isaiah 29, we'll then turn it back to Deuteronomy 29. So you've got Isaiah 29, first of all, and the verse number 10. For the Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep. That's the quotation that's given there in the beginning of verse number 8. God hath given them the spirit of slumber. Or at least that's the reference. But you then go back, so keep a finger in this Isaiah 29, and you then go back to Deuteronomy 29. And you see the majority of the reference that Paul is using according as it is written. Deuteronomy 29 and the verse number 4. Yet the Lord hath not given you an heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear unto this day. You will see Paul is taking the sense and the meaning of the text and he he, he replaces the negative God hath not given you with the positive language of Isaiah 29, God hath given you a spirit of deep sleep or slumber. And so he's he's merging the two passages together and he, he does so very, very deliberately. But in Deuteronomy 24, initially, Paul is liking his generation to the people in the wilderness. Listen to verse number 2. And Moses called unto all Israel and said unto them, Ye have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt unto Pharaoh, and unto all his servants, and unto all his land. They've seen these things. And the great temptations which I have seen, the signs and those great miracles, yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive. Uh, And Paul is making the point that those Jews in his day, they are akin to the people here in the wilderness. There's a pattern here. There are those who have seen the power of God, seen the signs and the miracles, but they do not respond in faith. They couldn't see beyond the physical to see the reality of the person of God. Paul takes that sense and he applies it and rather than God not giving this heart, he says that God has given a spirit of slumber. The word speaks of lethargy or stupor and insensitivity to reality and to truth. And that comes then, turn now, to Isaiah 29. And so I said to you already, he takes the, the negative God hath not given you, but rather than not giving them a heart to perceive, God hath given them, as he did in the days of Isaiah, a heart of slumber. Verse 10 for the Lord hath poured upon you, Isaiah 29, verse 10, the Lord hath poured upon, out upon you the spirit of deep sleep and hath closed your eyes, the prophets and your rulers, the seers, hath he covered. Here's where this deep sleep slumber concept comes from. The word is used of Adam. Whenever God took Adam and put him in deep sleep and then took from his rib to make Eve, That's the deepness of this deep sleep. This is not a a dozing off on a Sunday afternoon. It is a sleep that you cannot be roused from at 4am when somebody comes to your door. The deepness of deep sleep is used regarding Saul and his army. When David takes the spear and the crews of water from their side, the same word is used. That's the language here. You're seeing people who are not raised easily. And the words that are used here are clearly words of judgment. You see, look verse number 1 of Isaiah 29. And what's happening here is God is judging the people. Woe to Ariel is a reference to, to Jerusalem, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Ad ye year to year, let them kill sacrifice. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be heaven and sorrow, and it shall be unto me as Ariel. And he continues with these words of judgment. And part of the judgment is this giving them of a spirit of deep sleep. Verse 13. Wherefore the Lord said, listen to this language. For as much as his people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips to honor me, but have removed their heart from me and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. You know where that's from? Well, it's from Isaiah 29, but it's referred to in the Gospels regarding the Pharisees and the rulers. There's a worship of God with their lips, but their heart is far from God. And so what you're seeing here, the wilderness generation, Isaiah's generation, And now the generation of the Apostle Paul in the days of Christ and the Apostles, these generations are all the same. There's a consistent pattern of thought here. They are recipients of great blessings But they're asleep to heavenly realities and to truth. It was so in Moses' day. They saw all the signs, but they did not see. It was so in Isaiah's day. They would not see truth, even though God is bringing truth through Isaiah. And so it is now in the day of the greatest prophet of all, Christ Jesus. Miracles, signs and wonders, teach with authority. And yet they will not see. In Isaiah's day... Their rejection of God had reached the point of no return. They had so persisted in rejecting the Lord. You, you turn back to Isaiah chapter 6. Again, this is just not a theme in Isaiah chapter 29. It's also back in Isaiah 6, and it's in the call of Isaiah to the ministry. He's going to be a prophet of God's. Whom shall I send? Here am I. Send me, verse number 8, and then verse number 9. And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not. See ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the hearts of the people fat, and make their ears heavy, and, their, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed. What a minister this is, Isaiah. You're going to preach the word of God, and even through your very preaching, it's going to be a means of judging the people. As it was in Moses' day, as it was in Isaiah's day, the very preaching of the word of God is used by God as a means of judgment, hardening the hearts of the people. Again, I'm not going to run too far in application right now, but it's a very, very solemn thing if you sit under the preaching of the word of God and your heart is hardened under the word. That God uses his word in your ears in such a way that you stubbornly, consistently reject the word of God. The word of God itself, the blessing, becomes a means of judging your soul. And so we're seeing these things. You see it also then over in Acts chapter 28. We're seeing a pattern in return across Acts Acts 28. What is this pattern that we're seeing? Well, we're, we're again, we're, we're seeing that there are those who are greatly blessed, and yet in the blessing, as they reject the blessing, they are hardened in their hearts. Acts 28. It's, of course, referring to Paul in Rome, and there were those, again, of, of the Jews and Israelites in Rome who, who came to hear about Paul. There's a dead point that they came to him, verse 23, and he expounded and testified the kingdom of God persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses, out of the prophets from morning till evening. You see this. This is a, a Jewish audience. And what are they getting? They're receiving the privilege of the word of God from the apostle Paul himself. And some believed the things were spoken. And some believed not. There were those who were blinded and there were those who were the election according to the remnant of grace and, or the remnant to the of grace, and they believed these things. And they do not agree, verse 25, and they depart. And Paul says, Well saith the Holy Ghost by Isaiah, the prophet unto your fathers, saying, Go unto this people, and say, Hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and not perceive. For the heart of this people is wise, gross. Here's Paul's, if you like, a living historical test, my voice says in Romans 11. Yes, there are those who hear, but by and large, in general terms, the gospel is hid to those who are greatly privileged. Their eyes are closed, their ears are dull, and their hearts wax gross. Verse 28, it then says, Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, and they will hear it. We'll come to that later on. And so, back in Romans chapter 11, what you're seeing here is Paul using the Old Testament scriptures. To show that what's happening his day is not unusual. And God, the unchanging God, as he dealt in judgment in Moses' day and dealt in judgment in Isaiah's day, will bring judgment now in Paul's day. And we'll come to that. Before going forward, there are some things you should note. I just, I, I wrestled, how do you organize this? Well, I, I want to put the lessons in now. Now, in your bulletin it says C-D-E, that's just a typo, okay? It's A-B-C. If you're filling in blanks in the bulletin, it should be A, B, C, one of those autocorrect things in the in the word processor. But there are three things we should note before we move forward. We should remind ourselves again today of the of the absolute necessity of a divine work for men to perceive truth I, I know it's it's so obvious, but I, I'm mindful again of. Of uh, Some young folks in our gathering and others who perhaps are new to these things and need to remind of them time and time again. And even for all of us, we may know it well, but we sometimes forget it, that there are people and they can be eyewitnesses of the miraculous and the power of God. And yet they are still dead in their sin and they will not see Christ. I've said this so many times. Do not be surprised that your unconverted friends and family reject the gospel. Rejection of the gospel is what is natural to them. Belief in the gospel is supernatural. And it is to our shame that we are not in prayer as we ought to be. At 5.15 on a Sunday evening or at 7 o'clock on a Wednesday night that other things are more important than seeking the face of God for the extension of his kingdom. We subscribe to the doctrines of grace And the Reformed faith, we we say we believe in total depravity, and yet it seems to be the case that we presume that people can be saved without the power of God in their lives. Remind ourselves again of the absolute necessity of a divine work of grace. Secondly, please note the marks of grace in the elect. Because what you're seeing here, verse number seven, the election hath obtained it, the rest were blinded. There are contrasts here and there are opposites given here. And so what is true of the elect is not true of the blind and what's true of the blind is not true of the elect. Who are those who have come to know grace? Well, they are those who have a living heart and seeing eyes and hearing ears. They are not marked by slumber And a stripper of spirit when it comes to the things of God. You know, let me put this very, very bluntly. We live in a nation where there are so, so many... ...who profess to know the Lord, who go to church on a Sunday. And yet, they only really come alive... ...when you're discussing politics or sport or money. When those things are discussed, then they really come alive... But when it comes to talking to the Lord, there's a blank faith and deadness. It's a tragedy. If we say we live, then we live for these things. We are not marked by a stupor of spirits and a slumbering heart. We're not asleep when it comes to the gospel. But we love the gospel. We love Christ. And we delight to discuss these things. And we smile and are glad when we consider what God has done in his grace. And yet, tragically... Let's be honest. Tragically, we often find ourselves kind of more alive in discussing things of this world. They energize our spirits. You know, if, if your spirit is energized by the things of this world, it is the flesh that's being energized and not the spirit. The spirit is energized by the things of the gospel. And so... The elect are marked by that lively spirit, by the eyes that see and the ears that hear. Does that describe you today? Are you a living, breathing, seeing, hearing believer in the word of God? Is that your soul today? I say, oh, pastor, it is, but it's, it's not what it could be. Well, that's a third lesson. Because, dear child of God, we must beware likeness to our former state. What is the sense of remaining sin? Remaining sin is a likeness to our former state outside of grace. We know sin doesn't reign, but it remains. And what is sin? But it's, it's living like an unbeliever. Anytime we sin, we're behaving in a manner that is more consistent with unbelief than it is to faith in the gospel. So if, if the unbelievers are marked by a sleepiness and a dullness and a blindness, then we as the people of God must understand that at times remaining sin can behave like that and so a genuine child of God can find themselves spiritually sleepy and with spiritual cataracts upon their eyes they can they can see to some degree but they understand they're they're seeing through a cloud and they know the brightness of eyes that they once had what's happened Well, the flesh has come in. They've been consumed with the things of this world, and they need to repent and get back to the Lord. It's a serious thing when this spiritual state of stupor comes upon the child of God. And we're not immune to it. We need God to breathe the Spirit upon the work of God here, to enliven us, to warm our hearts again, that there be that joy and gladness. I I, I spoke about it on Wednesday night. That we be glad when we say, let's go to the house of the Lord. That our great burden and our desire is to come and sing God's praise. Be honest today. Do you want to be here today? Genuinely, is this somewhere you want to be in the house of God today? Uh, not because your friends are here for some, some public feast. Oh, if I'm missing, people wonder what's going on with me. No, but because you want to meet the Lord today. Is that part of your desire? And by the way, when I say it to you, I say it to myself as well. I have no choice but to come here. And that's a real danger. Is my heart here? Is your heart alive for the things of the gospel today? Or have you allowed the spirit to creep upon your soul? Well, are some lessons to keep in mind. When you see a stupor in your mind, when you see this slumber in your soul, hate it, deal with it, and get the Lord. Well, secondly today, as Paul explains this situation, he understands that this rejection is patterned in the Old Testament, but it's also punished. And this really is the key point he makes here, that we, we understand, well, it says here, God hath given them, verse number eight. We, we saw that in Isaiah chapter 29, there's a, a sense in God's actions here. This is not, if you're like, it's not men Creating this in themselves, it's it's God's action. And the question is, is this an arbitrary act of a sovereign God? Paul, he clearly sees the sovereign hand of God over the matter of the widespread rejection of the Jews. Chapter 9, verse number 17 and 18. He hath mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he pardoneth. Clearly, Paul understands the sovereignty of God. But the sovereign action of God in hardening the sinner is not arbitrary in that sense. It is unconditional. We saw that in Romans chapter 9. But when you get to Romans 11, you're seeing that God's hardening of the Jew is as a result of their rejection of the gospel. Look what he says. Verse number 10, verse number 9 and David saith let their table with a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them he's explaining God hath given them by a further quotation from the Old Testament this time from Psalm 69 so obvious thing turn back to Psalm 69 so you're trying to understand this, what does all this mean well, Psalm sixty-nine, and the verse twenty-two and twenty-three. Those are the texts. That's the text that Paul uses here in Romans chapter eleven. Let their table become a snare before them, and that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened, that they shall, and that they see not, and make their loins continue to shed again. In Romans eleven, he's using the Greek translation, the subtrugent of Psalm sixty-nine. It's a messianic psalm. We know that. Verse number 9. For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. When Christ cleans the temple. The disciples understand the fulfillment of that prophecy in, in the Gospels. We also see then verse number 18. As the psalmist prays, Draw nigh unto my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of mine enemies. Thou hast known my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. Mine adversaries are all before thee. Reproach hath broken my heart. I am full of heaviness. I looked for some to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me also gall for my meat. And in my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Let their table become a snare before them. See, when you see a connection like that, You understand what's happening here in Romans 11 is a direct judgment of God. The word recompense that is used, again, by Paul over in Romans 11, let it become a stumbling block and a recompense unto them is a reflection of the fact that the widespread rejection of the Jew is because there was widespread rejection of Jesus when he was on the earth performing miracles and ministering to them. He came unto his own, and they did not receive him. He came unto his own, and they shouted, crucify him. They were those who, in Pilate, said he saw no sin. in The man, they said, his blood be in us and on our children. The generation rejected Christ. They did so willfully, and they did so purposefully to the death of their own Messiah. Therefore, Paul takes the phrase and says, Let their tail become a snare before them. Sproul has interesting insight in this section in Romans 11 regarding these quotations. He makes the observation that Paul quotes Deuteronomy 29, Isaiah 29, and Psalm 69, and in so doing, he takes each major section of the Old Testament canon the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. And in each section, he points out a biblical pattern of divine activity, in his language, in the judicial hardening of hearts. A pattern Paul sees repeated in his own day. And so there are two details to note in this. First of all, this is a particular sentence. Again, back in our psalm, let their table become a snare before them. Their table, a trap. What's in view there? Well, the idea of table here, I believe, refers to the Jewish privileges. Psalm 23 prepares a table before them in the presence of his enemies. A table spread with gospel truth. A feast of gospel privileges is set before them. It is the privilege of the word of God and the law of God. But that becomes a trap and a snare to the Jew. And so it is. They are stuck on the observance of the law that they did not see the offer of freedom in Christ Jesus. That's the message of Galatians. You're concerned about keeping the law, but you don't see the law pointing to Christ, and in Christ there's freedom. And so you're trapped in the law, not knowing the freedom in Christ. Works is a snare and a trap. The gospel is freedom and liberty. And so in Romans 9, verse 3-2, it says this. Wherefore, why did they not find it? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. They have the privilege of the word of God and the law, and yet that becomes a snare. It's a particular sentence. It's also a persistent sentence. Again, we have the language in Romans chapter 11. Unto this day, verse number 8, in other words, unto the day that Paul writes. But over in Psalm 69, it says, make their loins continually to shake. How's that used by Paul? He who says in in, in Romans 11, he says this, and bow down their back always. Is there a contradiction here? No. What's happening here is likely a reference, a, a Pictorial reference to the blind bending over to find their way in the dark. Their backs bent in such a way that their upper legs are shaking under the pressure, of being stooped all the time. And so you're seeing this is a translation principle of, of from the Hebrew into the Greek. But the point I'm making is make their loins continually to shake. And in Romans 11, bow down their back all the way. This is a persistent sentence. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, even unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. And as Paul says even unto this day, we can say even unto this day. The Jews still in our day, when the word of God is read, the Psalms, the Prophets, and the law, the veil is still upon their heart. That's why, the Jews don't believe that Jesus is the Christ. There is the judgment of God due to their rejection that is continuing from generation to generation because they continue to disbelieve the Word of God and reject the Gospel. It is a very, very solemn passage indicating that an aspect of God's judgment is the blindness and the deafness of those who hear the Word. I know this applies directly, Romans 11 applies directly to first century Jews. Or at least it's explaining to the Gentiles, the state of the Jew, it's explaining to those who Paul is writing to, how come these Jews don't believe? How come only this elect remnant see? And Paul is saying, well, it's an act of judgment. I need you to stay with me here. I know our time is marching on but I need to make a point before we finish today because this is not a statement of anti-Semitism I'm going to make that clear later on I am simply stating the reality of the word of God that God has brought judgment upon the Jews because they rejected their Messiah to say unless is to misinterpret Romans 11 and I don't want to do that but nor do I want to be misunderstood in such a way that there is a, therefore a, a widespread hatred of the Jew as a person or the nation. You see, this, while it does, of course, apply directly to the first century Jew and those subsequent generations, it should cause fear and concern in all those who deliberately turn their back against the Lord. There is an application here. If this is the unchanging God's way of dealing with those who reject his grace, therefore that same principle holds fast for us today. You know, turn back just very briefly to Luke chapter 12. You see, in Luke chapter 12, we have this kind of principle applied. It is a solemn thing to come under the preaching of the word of God. It's a solemn thing to hear the word of God from your childhood be taught the things of the gospel, and yet decide in your heart, I'm not going to believe the gospel. See, Luke 12, in verse number 47, after this parable, and the servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. And here's the application. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required." and to whom men have committed much of him, they will ask the more. There is the application. The blessing of being under the word of God and yet forsaking the gospel may well bring upon the hardening judgment of God upon your heart. If you find yourself in such a state today, that truth be told, you have no care about the gospel, no care about the Lord Jesus Christ. You've no care about your soul. If you find yourself in that state, please do not respond in such a way that you say to yourself, well, it's too late for me. I have rejected the gospel. I heard it once, twice, three times, and I turned my back against the gospel. Therefore, I must now be under the judgment of God." Fear that reality, fear that possibility, but do not stay in that state. Run to Lord for mercy. He delights to show mercy. Go to God with your very experience and say, Yes, Lord, that's me. Have mercy upon my soul. There is still mercy with the Lord today. It's still a day of salvation. And so if you've rejected the gospel, Do not sin again by rejecting it today another time. Today may be the day of your salvation. Get to God. Fall upon your knees and ask him to show mercy to your soul. Their rejection is punished. Make sure yours is not today. Get to Christ today. Well, Finally, just briefly. Note that Israel's rejection is purposed here. Now here, I'm just going to touch on this today, because this will really serve as the introduction for next Lord's Day's message. Because when you get down to verse number 11 and 12, he then goes on to really deal with the application of this further. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. And the, the question really must be asked, if the sentence is persistent, in the previous verses, if the unto this day continues and continues for centuries, will it always be the case? Will the slumber of the Jews last forever? And that's what Paul is now addressing. Or at least he's going to hint that at it here and come back to it more shortly. But he's going to say right now, God forbid, may it never be. This strong emphatic negative that Paul uses at times in Romans, this is not the case. It's not that the Jewish people is done for and finished forever and forever. That's not what's happening here. He explains the reality. First of all, he notes the historical fact. Rather, through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles. He's saying this is what happens in fact and in history. Acts 18, Acts 28. There is rejection by Jews of the gospel. And Paul says in both those passages, for now we're going to go to the Gentiles. They shall, here we saw it in Acts 28. And so Paul is saying, they fall and through their fall, the doors of gospel opportunity open particularly to the Gentiles. And they shall indeed accept the Lord. People like you. Me. That's the reality explained. Then there's also some reasons given. And there are are two reasons given. One is God's plan to save or to make rich the Gentiles. Salvation has come unto the Gentiles. Verse number 12. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world. Or the riches of the Gentiles. God's plan is being fulfilled as the Jews reject the Messiah, so the gospel is open to the Gentiles and they are saved and they are made rich. Christ became poor that we might be made rich. I could stop here for a while. A sense of true perspective. Dear child of God, if you're saved, you are rich today. You have riches beyond your comprehension. Why would you spend so much energy and sweat and anxiety on seeking to pursue this world's goods? You understand I am not suggesting, don't work hard, be lazy, give up your job, none of those things. It's a matter of perspective. This is what really matters. And so the Jewish rejection is the Gentiles are made rich, but also, secondly, it is that God's plan is to provoke the Jews to jealousy by the Gentile acceptance of the gospel. Verse 11. God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Why? Just you ask that question? Why does it matter what the Jews think? If they are blinded and hardened... Why does it matter that God would provoke them to jealousy? Well, surely it is that they would see their sin. Surely it is that they would repent of their sin. Surely it is that they'd be converted. Surely it is that they brought back into the covenant of grace and the promises that were theirs. Surely all of these things is because God has a heart for physical, ethnic Israel. Beware. Any disregard of Israel as a nation or as a people group. Beware that spirit that may easily creep into the soul in these days. I am not discussing what the rights and the wrongs of their present action, but I'm simply saying that clearly in the purpose of God, the fact that you are saved today is because God has a love for Israel as a people. They are not cut off or cast away. Now, you know that I am not a premillennial. I am not expecting some earthly reign centered in Jerusalem. You may think that. You're entitled to do so in our denomination. That's not my point. I'm simply saying to you that my point is not land-based. It is spiritual-based. It is heart-based. It is the fact that God loves a remnant according to the election of grace. Therefore, beware a disregard for Israel as a people. So that's the reasons given. Thirdly, he then expresses the rationale. And these we're going to go back to these things in the next week or so. Verse number 12. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Wow, well, this is a text. He's given the rationale behind what's happening and what he's going to develop. He says, if the Jewish rejection be a means whereby the Gentiles can be made rich, and those things, if you like, redound to God's glory, how much more will their fullness redound to God's glory? In other words, he's saying, if God has a purpose in their rejection, God will have no less a purpose in their acceptance of Christ. This is pointing forward to the fact that the Jewish blindness is not forever. Now, be careful here. The word fullness is often misunderstood. It's referred to over in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Fullness of the Gentiles does not mean that every single Gentile is converted. It means that every single elect Gentile is converted. And if that's what fullness means in Romans 11, verse 25, and it has to, then the fullness referred to here in Romans 11 verse 12 is a reference to every single elect Jew being converted. (coughs) It does not necessarily point to entire national repentance and a running to Christ Jesus. And we'll get there later on in Romans. But for now, simply note the point. God has still a saving purpose for Israel. God still is saving a remnant according to election of grace. His covenantal purpose to Israel requires that he is still dealing with individual Jews and drawing them to Christ Jesus. Therefore, pray for those who evangelize the Jews. Therefore, if you have opportunity, share the gospel with those who are Jewish. And pray for God to save those because they are part of his elect people. And as we pray for the building of the church, that's going to include Jew and Gentile. And we're going to spend all eternity. Jew and Gentile, in one body, worshipping the lamb that was slain. Now I am so very thankful for your patience today. This is difficult. We're working through texts and Bible texts. I trust you've seen application to your soul. But as we close, let me just simply read to you again the words at the end of Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the, wit- of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out, for who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counsellor, or who hath first given to him, and it should be recompense unto him again, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Eternal God and Father, we commit our ways into your care, and we pray, O Lord, for grace to understand the word carefully. Although we understand that even in this Room, there are different views and opinions regarding these things. Maybe, maybe hold these various views with grace and charity and uh, and a compassion the one for the other. May we all submit ourselves to the Word of God and try to understand what the Word says regarding our own day. Help us, O God, to have a, a love for Jew and Gentile alike, that that we would not exclude the Gospel from any. Ethnic uh, community, but rather bring the gospel to all people for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Oh God, save souls today. We think of those who are hardened in their sins. We pray, oh God, that in grace and in mercy you would draw them to Christ Jesus. Oh God, while, while others are calling, save people in our own context, friends and family and neighbors in this place. Open the eyes of the blind cause their sleeping hearts to awake, their dead hearts to live. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for your word today. Bless us together in Jesus' name. Amen.